You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 73 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. In this episode, my guest is Graham St. John. And Graham is a cultural anthropologist with research interests in electronic dance music cultures, the Burning Man movement, the anthropology of religion, alternative religious movements and entheogens. And in this episode, we are going to focus mostly on his latest book called Mystery School in Hyperspace, A Cultural History of DMT. So thanks for being on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. So tell the listeners a bit about who you are and what you do. Uh, My name's Graham St. John. Uh, I'm... Uh, a cultural anthropologist and uh, I, I guess a, a cultural historian and uh, my interests cover uh, a wide range of areas. Uh, I have an interest in, in festivals, uh, event cultures and entheogens and uh, my recent book is uh, Mystery School in Hyperspace, A Cultural History of DMT which I believe is uh, what you're specifically interested in today. Yeah, and I've, uh, I've just read it as well. And it's, uh, well, it basically doesn't leave much out from the DMT history. You know, you've managed to include, I can't think of anything you missed. Was it a lot of work to put that together? Well, yes, it was a lot of work, but I'm sure that there are many things that I've missed. I mean, even, even though it's... Uh, a lengthy book uh, at 500 pages, which uh, a friend of mine has said it's uh, big enough to break open some heads, and uh, I'm holding it right now, and I can tell you it's uh, it's thick enough to to do that job. Uh, but it's it's it was um, I was very intentional to call it uh, a history, a cultural history, rather than the cultural history, because. Um, you know, it's a very complicated and uh, detailed um, modern history, and um, but there are many things that I, I will have, uh, and I know that I haven't covered in uh, as much detail as I would have liked. So it's a project that I would hope uh, inspires others to, uh, you know, continue to um, fill the gaps and. Uh, account for uh, this this modern cultural history of DMT. Because when I read it uh, recently, I mean, I was surprised to see that you mentioned this country singer who sings about DMT. And I mean, it's pretty recent. I heard about that. So I thought, oh, you even managed to squeeze that in. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's, it is surprising. And the, the, the project like this was uh, it was very entertaining for me and took me down in a lot of paths that I hadn't anticipated and um, and gave me access to uh, a lot of stories and developments and details in the in the popular uh, cultural manifestation the the popular cultural impact of DMT that I find really fascinating and. Yeah, the uh, Sturgill Simpson, uh, uh, I believe, is the um, the country singer who uh, was inspired by DMT and other antigens that I refer to in a brief passage in the book. Maybe it's my ignorance, but from what I've noticed, uh, I mean, this you mentioned this guy, or you talk about Stephen Sara, and uh, he's not as well known as other psychedelic researchers as like Huxley and Shulgin and Wasson. And uh, I was wondering, you know, if you can say a bit about who he was and why you think he's a bit more obscure. I mean, at least from the perspective I have. Yeah, I guess, well, uh, Stephen Zara is uh, the Hungarian uh, psychopharmacologist who uh, discovered the uh, psychopharmacological action of, uh, of, of DMT in 1956. And um, so he, his uh, 
you know, he's a, uh, you know, uh, a key figure in this whole development. I call, I refer to him as the, uh, the Neil Armstrong of DMT because he's the guy who is the scientist who went there bioassayed with this, this, you know, specific purpose intention of, uh, you know, testing out this compound on himself and, uh, and discovered that it was, uh, effective, uh, when, uh, introduced, uh, uh, into the bloodstream via, via, uh, uh, needle. And, um, but we, we know, I guess, comparatively little about him by comparison to many of the other, uh, key figures in the history of psychedelics, uh, the, you know, the, the original, uh, figures who went there first, who went up the river first and why that is, I, I, I don't really know. I guess, I mean, I, I, um, I would hope that, uh, uh, Stephen Zara produces a biography because um, I, I believe that he is or is in his nineties now or it, around that age, and um, and we've gone a long time without knowing anything very personal about his, you know, in terms of his reflections, and we have the reflections of many other figures. So yeah, he he's a bit bit obscure in that that sense. You know, do you think the real reason why uh, DMT and other psychedelics were banned was from from fear, or just circumstance, or a conscious effort by some big brother? Well, that's 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 a big question. Uh, I guess that that um, comes down to, I mean, one of the key themes in in my book is that we have uh, a very ambivalent attitude towards uh, DMT and, and other uh, psychedelics. But, but DMT, uh, we have a powerful ambivalence. And, that, <clears throat> and that's reflected in, in uh, our reception to uh, this compound and its effects. Because on the one hand, yes, we, we live in, uh, for decades, we've lived in a uh, a pro prohibition climate where uh, this substance, among others, is regarded as dangerous and with no uh, medical benefits to humans. And on, yet, on the other hand, um, we know that um, uh, the that that scientists have regarded uh, this substance as. Uh, the uh, uh, the brain's own psychedelic, and that is the 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 spirit molecule, according to um, uh, the likes of uh, Rick Strassman, and that uh, a great many practitioners and users are uh, claim that the the substance enables them to uh, undertake spiritual journeys and spiritual transformation, and has uh, inaugurated. Um, uh, life revaluations and has a great uh, role in uh, the therapeutic developments. So, um, and I think that this ambivalence, this ambivalent attitude, um, yes, I think that uh, I think on the and on the first side of things that it does result from ignorance and fear, uh, fear of difference, fear of the other, fear of uh, even you know our own mortality. And uh, because one of the great things about um, and, and fascinating things to me about DMT is that it does expose us to our own mortality. And uh, it, it, uh, I like to call it the, the little death because um, while no one is actually dying when they, uh, when they use this substance, uh, but we are encountering uh, something like a, a phenomenological, if not symbolic, uh, death. And um, I think that these kinds of things, uh, which inaugurate life transitions uh, and that potentiate, uh, you know, breakthroughs into um, uh, new realities that we can bring back from these spaces, uh, is uh, 
causes a great deal of uh, trepidation. And I, and I, I also like to think that in certainly as what I've documented in the book, uh, that we we've seen this uh, you know this ambivalence that's impacted uh, impacted us from you know on a cultural level in terms of you know films and and and, uh, and, and literature. Is it scientifically proven that uh, DMT is the thing that's behind when you're dreaming? Naturally, I mean. Uh, yes, there um, is speculation in that regard also. I've got to admit that, uh, I mean, I think your first question was, uh, you know, had I covered everything in the book? And I certainly have not, because I think there's a lot more that could be said about uh, um, dream states and uh, the role of DMT. But I, many people... Um, do make the comparison between dream states and and uh, and, uh, and the so-called DMT trance. That's interesting. Because, you know, when I think about my own dreams, I mean, even though they might be weird or crazy, they, are, they still are in, like, a reality. I mean, it looks like reality, but it might be a bit morphed. But it's still like, you know, I, I can experience things that I can experience in real life, but a bit different. But it doesn't remind. I never had a dream that reminded me of a DMT journey. I mean, because they are completely, I mean, different. So that's why I feel a bit skeptical that it could be that, but or maybe it just. Well, I don't know. <laughs> well, I think one of the reasons why we don't know is because uh, there just hasn't been enough research, and you know we're, we're still in a in a dark age. I mean, in terms of science and research around this uh, substance and others that have been uh, subject to the war on drugs, which has impacted uh, not only people from, you know, uh, you know, re recreational use point of view or a therapeutic use point of view, but from, uh, uh, from, from, uh, you know, from the human science of uh, DMT. And so I think the reason why we're, well, you know, we we, um, you know, we're we're, we're still in this this um, uh, even even though we're currently experiencing a so-called renaissance in research, we're still we still have a long way to go. You mentioned in the book that philosopher Alan Watts tried DMT, but he never spoke about it, and. When I read that, I thought, yeah, that's weird because, you know, I, rem I remember my first DMT experience and I almost felt like I wanted to call CNN and, and give them the news because uh, it's so amazing. But, you know, after a while, you kind of like, you don't want to talk to anybody who hasn't done it because you just get these freaked out expressions <laughs> when you speak to them. So, uh, and, and you also mentioned in the book that, you know, uh, I think you quoted McKenna, if I'm not mistaken, but where, you know, usually people are enlightened, they are silent, because there's not much to say. Can you uh, talk a bit about this? Yeah, well, you know, Watts, Watts is a very intelligent guy, and maybe his silence, based on that one time, was uh, reflective of the fact that he'd, he'd been, he'd, he'd gone there. And I think for a lot of people who go there and come back, there's nothing, there's nothing to say about it. But I think that usually happens with, um, you know, that, that, that's more likely to happen with uh, people who uh, are regularly users over decades that have, you know, are in, in the thousands of, uh, of trips who are less, who are more likely to, to, um, to have completely internalized their experiences. And uh, so uh, I think the, the profoundly uh, astonishing and authentic nature of the experience uh, makes it very difficult to, tr to transcribe that. So that this whole project process of uh, authoring a book on this is been a very difficult uh, procedure because I've been required to juggle a, 
a, a great deal of um, different material that's also inflected by from my own personal experience. So this is a book that is, uh, uh, yeah, it's it's in it's inflected with my own experience, but it's not it's not a you know it's not a five hundred page tripping report because I think that would end up being quite boring. Yeah, I think that would be impossible. I mean, you have some uh, quotes from trip reports, and you have some you write yourself, but they're they're brief and. And uh, and I'm, I'm think I was thinking when I was reading those that I even though I haven't seen what those people have seen I I can kind of get what what it was but I mean imagine somebody who has no experience with DMT I mean that would just be I mean it just be confusing confusing random words you know <laughs> like it's it's very difficult to and you 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 did a very good job but I mean it's it's practically impossible to to put into words you know a trip report. I think. Well, yes, but there are a great, great many, um, you know, travelers, returnees, uh, you know, contactees who have returned with, with some amazing stories. And uh, many of those stories I've attempted to convey. So as unenglishable as Terence McKenna said, that the experience is... I mean, he was a great exponent of of, of someone who was able to uh, um, uh, create, you know, recreate his own experiences, which began in uh, in the fall of 1965 for him in in uh, Berkeley uh, on a rainy night when he was uh, had his encounter with the so-called machine elves of hyperspace, and then. For decades afterwards, uh, toured the globe to um, regale audiences with his stories. But he's and so he's the uh, I guess the benchmark figure. But there are many there are many people who've um, uh, who've not only been able to bring back that experience and in a way that they've been able to convey it to others, not only in writing but of course in music and and in visual art. In a range of art forms that I've covered in the book, and the book includes um, 30 wonderful color illustrations as well, and there's a couple of chapters on music. Uh, but people who have also created their own languages and um, terminology, and you know, I make reference to the the um, the hyperspace lexicon that uh, is developed at the DMT Nexus, and that's an ongoing. Uh, lexicon with uh, language that has had to be invented for things that um, did not do not exist outside that space. So that's a fascinating process of uh, of, uh, of, um, of of uh, of of a, 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 a language to articulate these experiences. I really like the idea you quoted. I think it was also Terence McKenna where he says that uh, the DMT realm. I mean, when when we go into the DMT realm, we're not only explorers; like we're ambassadors of the human race. And uh, you know, it kind of turns everything upside down when you think of it like that. You know that there, and you also mentioned it in the book that you know if a year passes here in this reality, you know maybe a year passes in that realm. Can you talk a bit about this? Yeah. Well, the the idea that um, I mean that this, I guess, you know, Terence Terence McKenna's that was one of his uh, key ideas that um, that uh, the the altered experience, uh, the interdimensional experience associated with. Uh, DMT hyperspace uh, was not an adventure for one's own uh, therapeutic development purposes. It wasn't. It's not something that. Uh, and he was quite hardcore about this. It's not not something that one should undertake for one's own personal growth. It was. It, it is an experience that one should undertake to the benefit of uh, humanity. And that one was bringing back 
um, uh, 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 gnosis that is potentially instrumental to the evolution of, of consciousness. And that was his, uh, you know, longstanding uh, uh, thesis and, and practice that I think is fascinating. And um, he's one of, uh, you know, I guess he is the key uh, um, uh, inspirator for this project. And that's why I've devoted a lot of time to uh, um, studying aspects of his life and his approach to psychedelics. And for, for one thing, you know, I guess it's, it's ultimately impossible to get to, um, I mean, I, I don't envy the task of anyone who will perhaps eventually write a book called Terence McKenna. But, uh, and I think that there's a good reason why we haven't seen a book about that title to this point, and that's because we're talking about a guy who is very difficult to, um, to pin down and uh, because he, he will make many contrary statements and um, but you have to admire a guy who um, was a, a brilliant public orator who never gave the same presentation twice. Yeah, and I'm very happy they managed to record most of those also. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's it. There, there are more uh, more links than a than a sausage factory. But if you want to read like just a biography, I mean, you you have a, a bit in your book, but Dennis McKenna wrote a, a biography, but it doesn't go into like his ideas so much more biographical. So there is that if people want to check that out. Sure. Yeah. The, the the brotherhood of the the screaming abyss. Yeah. That's. Uh, but I mean that the. the that's obviously a very important book, but um, if anyone really wants to go down into Terence McKenna land, uh, True Hallucinations is the book to start with. One thing in your book, you mentioned uh, that um, in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, it's 49, 49 days for the soul to reincarnate, and it's also 49 days from the conception to the first signs of the pineal formation in the embryo. And I really like that because, you know, you always, especially in America, you have this debate, is abortion murder? And you could say, like, well, if it's after 49 days. Right. Yeah, well, of course, um, Rick Strasman was the guy who uh, popularized this idea and this the connection with, um, with DMT because, of course, um, uh, Rick Strasman, just to familiarize your listeners uh, wrote a book called The Empty the Spirit Molecule, which is, uh, is a best-selling book and uh, that was based on his research in the 90s uh, at the University of New Mexico where he had the f- full approvals to, uh, to uh, uh, conduct uh, experiments with volunteers who were injected with, uh, many were injected with high-dose uh, uh, DMT and uh, were observed for their subjective and phenomenological effects of DNT. Half of around half of the uh, of the volunteers experienced entities of uh, varying varying types. But this was a period when uh, McCann, when uh, Rick was uh, a practicing Buddhist, and. Um, he uh, speculates a lot of speculations in his book. Um, one of the key speculations is that um, uh, that uh, the human pineal gland produces DMT at uh, in at, in psychedelic uh, quantities throughout uh, the life cycle in various key moments in the life cycle, uh, specifically death and um, and birth, and uh, and so as uh, an inflection of his uh, Buddhist philosophy, 
he did come across this uh, realization that uh, uh, that the the forty nine days uh, of uh, that is that the the soul is takes to reincarnate into a new body is the same time as the um, as the, the pineal forma formation. Uh, but uh, interest, it's interesting to me, as I document in the book, that uh, Rick has uh, written a new book, and that is uh, DMT, The Soul of Prophecy, where he is now a returnee to Judaism. So he's effectively um, switched theological models, and I, and I discussed that in the book. But most people uh, recognize uh, Strasman from, through his uh uh, Buddhist inflected uh, ideas, and what's interested, interesting to me is that these ideas, this meme of the, the so-called DMT gland, that the that our pineal gland produces DMT and has done uh, throughout uh, history, and that is uh, potentially responsible for. Uh, prophetic and contact experiences that are at the roots of uh, religion uh, has is is a speculation that has uh, effectively left the clinic to take on a life of its own, as seen in a, a great range of uh, popular cultural product, including horror films that I looked at in the book um, and this is a development that's ongoing because it's um, and this is one of the reasons why the book is 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 you know it's it's not it's not complete because we're talking about a, a development that is happening as we speak yeah and I'm sure it's going to generate also you know more you know further snowball it forward as well yeah, it's, so it's, uh, I mean, for, so there's even this year I was uh, just talking about um, uh, horror films and, and Hollywood. Uh, I was watching the uh, Wachowski, Wachowski's have a new uh, series called, um, and that they're, they made, of course, The Matrix, another film. Um, they have a TV series uh, called Sensate where, um, yeah, I think it's in the opening uh, show of the the first season where uh, DMT is being smoked, um, and it's a rather surprisingly misinformative uh, depiction of DMT. But in the other, uh, on the other hand, it 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 is a mirror of of our cultural ambivalence towards DMT because on the one hand where uh, one of the um, characters in the film refers to uh, DMT as being a, uh, enabling uh, transcendence and, uh, and, and um, uh, as potential source of truth and connection uh, but on the other hand it, then, it is then almost immediately associated with murder and, and violent death because uh, these people who have just smoked DMT are all, uh, most of them are shot in a gun battle, which uh, is completely ridiculous and absurd for anyone who uh, knows what that experience is like, be impossible. You know, if you, if you want to heal yourself, I mean, uh, oral DMT like ayahuasca is, is very good because, you know, it takes many hours and you can like work through whatever problems you have uh, but when you smoke DMT you know it's so fast uh, you know I, and uh, I can't you know my experience is I did ayahuasca first and then I smoked DMT for the first time so when I smoke DMT I kind of like have a rerun of my ayahuasca experiences and I can I can in that even though it's a short time I can still you know get some sense out of it. But I, I imagine if somebody, well, I don't know, but I imagine that if somebody who only s has smoked DMT, it might be a bit more confusing. 
Well, I think it it really it's very difficult to make uh, universal statements about that. Um, I know many people who not uh, experienced ayahuasca and who uh, just done DMT and have had incredible life life changing experiences. There are one time users who will never, you know, they've they've hung up the phone and they they got all they needed. Um, and we're talking about decades ago, and we're talking about people who've then gone on to be, to make, that that for that experience has been instrumental in uh, bringing joy and uh, to the lives of many others. So it's very difficult to make generalized statements about that, but we do know that ayahuasca and DMT experiences are, are very even though there's parallels that we can draw, they're, um, they are unique experiences unto themselves. And, and many people would argue that each ayahuasca experience of that is, is, is almost incomparable to other ayahuasca experiences they've had because they've, 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 they've had a different brew with different uh, ingredients and different shaman and so on. It's a lot of different contexts. When it comes to like oral DMT, like ayahuasca, I mean, there is a, there is a history of indigenous use, but you know, when you smoke DMT, uh, you know, to extract DMT, I mean, it's a lot of chemicals and, you know, it's like a modern chemistry exercise, but is there any like indigenous use of, of taking DMT in a smoking way? Oh, that's a, very good question, and um, as far as I know, that's there. The, the answer is no. Um, there may be more that would come will come to light on that, but we're talking about um, we're not talking about modern uh, usages. Because you meant you 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 have a segment in the book where you talk about Australia and uh, and the fact that there's a DMT plant. Uh, national plant and you know maybe those indigenous in Australia maybe I mean this is just speculation but can you uh, elaborate on that yes you're right it, it is just speculation and um, because we we have no evidence for um, the uh, indigenous Australian historical use of, uh, of DMT but yet many people would argue that because it's so prevalent in in the net, in the native ecology of Australia then uh and because we're talking about you know 60,000 years of uh of human presence at least then the likelihood that uh that when we when we factor in Though those figures and that reality, the 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 likelihood that there may have been uh, 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 this uh, cultural development and experimentation, you know, it seems increasingly likely. But um, it, it, has it carried into uh, into the indigenous culture that uh, European settlers uh, uh, encountered 200-250 years ago? I'm not sure. I mean, this is all speculation. Because they also have the concept of the dream time, so, you know, it it makes a bit bit sense. Yes. Well, personally, I'm looking forward to um, um, uh, to learning a lot more about this and I know that there are there are people uh, working in these areas who are in uh, you know, deep dialogue with uh, indigenous Australians and and so I I I'm I'm hopeful that uh, we'll, we'll learn more about this I I I, I feel that I'm not an expert to uh, to comment on it. 
You know, when you uh, when you make DMT for smoking it, you can get uh, white crystals or yellow crystals. You know, and apparently the white ones are more pure. But is there any difference in in the experience, or which is one better than the other? Well, uh, I, I'm not. I I will have to say that this book project is not a, it's not a how-to book and I have to be very clear about that I'm, I'm not uh, promoting myself as someone who uh, is going to provide you with uh, a practical means of uh, of uh, of experimentation I'm a, essentially a cultural historian and uh, if you've read the book you'll know that this is not a how-to guide, and I did not uh, undertake this project with that intention in mind. No, no, for sure. Uh, but I was just thinking because there's in a chapter in the book uh, there was uh, about these people, and some people claimed they were promoting the the white crystals and some the yellow ones, and you know they were trying to uh, reach the most pure. You know, they, it was like a, a space race quite early on in the book if I don't remember incorrectly yeah I, I uh, I'm struggling to uh, to know what that is I don't know what you read there you also mention um, Shanga uh, which in the book a lot and um, I actually it was the first time I ever came across that so could you talk a bit about what what this Shanga is and how that came about well, Chang'e is, or uh, Chang'e is uh, probably the most popular means of uh, consuming DMT actually today, and that is a uh, smoking blend that has become very popular in more sort of public uh, rituals and, and public usage. Um, you'll at many festivals the the bouquet from these blends very prominent uh, the the DMT in in this blend has been traditionally uh, uh, extracted from Australian acacias and uh, the uh, as Terence McKenna once said, "The acacia ecology of Australia is jammed with DMT," and uh, and he said that in a, I think in a 1997 tour of Australia, and there was a sample also in it's been sampled quite a lot in in different tracks, and that um, enthused a lot of people who, including. Uh, and there were also many people who were also experimenting with creating these um, these DMT blends from uh, from acacias uh, from the DMT and acacia that is very pervasive in Australia. Acacias, DMT containing acacias are uh, are everywhere, and in fact, um, uh, the the uh, the 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 main floral emblem of Australia is is the wattle, and um, so a great many great many acacia files and uh, DMT heads are are quite ecstatic about that connection. Uh, but Changer was a development on existing DMT blends because it uses the Banisteriopsis capi vine and uh, shavings thereof, which among other herbs is uh, infused with um, with a DMT. So it has become known uh, in some circles as a, as a um, as a, as a kind of uh, ayahuasca analog, but. Um, that that phrase is a little bit uh, specious because um, the the blend is more uh, 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 an augmentation of DMT rather than a, a kind of 
augmentation of ayahuasca or some kind of evolution of ayahuasca. And a big music culture has grown around DMT. And, uh, you know, Goa is mentioned a few times in the book. Is it still a place to go or has that been ruined by tourism these days? Or has that kind of place moved to somewhere else in the world? Well, uh, people still go back to Goa, they tell me. Um, yeah, psychedelic electronica is, is a global <clears throat> phenomenon. And uh, in my previous book, uh, Global Tribe, uh, which was about uh, the development of psychedelic trance, uh, deals with uh, the this flourishing of uh, psychedelic electronic or in the form of festivals around the world. Uh, festivals like the Boom Festival Better, that's in Portugal, that was very much a... Uh, a, a development from Goa because, you know, by and when we're when we're talking about Goa, we're talking about a a a, a, a place that people would go to from all around the world from the '60s throughout the '70s and the and the psychedelic rock development through the psychedelic electronic development in the 80s and by the end of the 80s and the, the turn of the 90s in Goa during the seasons there, um, these, were, these were very powerful, um, ex exclusive uh, space to, uh, to party in, and to formulate uh, a new style of uh, music and, uh, and, and culture and cultural experimentation that then was exported, I guess, around the world. And the Boom Festival was a great example, and still is, of an effort to um, kind of condense the Goa seasonal experience into into one week. And it's one week that includes the full moon. And, and, um, and people now from over 150 countries, so it's very, still very transnational and um, the dance floor is the, the main dance floor. There is probably the only dance floor on the planet where you can uh, we can be sharing that experience with uh, you know more than you know, people from more than one hundred different countries. So a, a very and 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 it's also a, these are also spaces where where uh, the ability to dissolve the boundaries that separate you as an individual from other individuals and nature is highly optimized. And when I say optimized, I mean that there are an assemblage of technologies and techniques uh, available to us that are enabled this 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 process of dissolution, and um, we're talking about digital, chemical, uh, entheogenic um, practices and technologies that um, have uh, maximized our uh, our capacity to to dissolve boundaries and to uh, uh, expand our minds and, uh, and, uh, and, and, and share these experiences with others because of course we're not talking about, we're not talking about experiences that can be had at home alone. We're talking about, uh, uh you know, optimized vibes that, uh, are, are shared with others. And of course, uh, we have a range of sensory technologies, including, uh, uh, DMT in, in, in the form of uh, Changa, which is very popular in these environments and, and uh, has been optimized for public use, even, including in dance floors. And yeah, I addressed that in that, that development in the book as well. And you mentioned a lot of, I guess I could call it DMT music, <laughs> uh, electronic music, uh, but I guess you had to mention 
all of it, but um, as or as much as you could. But do you have any personal favorites that you can recommend? Well, uh, I, I don't think that you can really go past um, Spongel um, because Spongel are the you know they're they're the they're the emissaries uh, Roger Arm and Simon Passford. Uh, the the whole the whole Spongle project was really inspired by DMT and by by Terence McKenna and actually DMT that came via Terence McKenna and I and I tell that story in the book. It's not a story that's very widely known and um, uh, Youth uh, Martin Glover was also instrumental in that. Youth being um, the founder of Dragonfly Records, and I tell a story in the book of how, uh, in I believe it was '93 or '94, when uh, Roger Ram uh, came over to uh, Youth's place in London at, uh, at his Butterfly Records, and uh, and uh, they had a pipe ritual in in uh, in the backyard. There was a few other people there, and. Uh, Youth uh, recounted to me his um, his experience that he hadn't really shared before about uh, the the significant impact of this experience that he had in the backyard of Butterfly Records, which was essentially the birth of Psytrance and, and the birth of Goa Trance, really, and um, and. Uh, and of course, downstream from that uh, was uh, was Spongel, who uh, formed in the late '90s, and their their uh, first release, "Are uh, You Spongel," uh, was essentially a, um, uh, a a a, um, a sounding board for for McKenna and uh, the impact of DMT. So yeah, I I, rec- I would recommend that. Um, uh, if anyone hasn't listened to uh, any Spongle, especially Are You Spongle, then that's that's the first port of call. It's like the Sgt. Pepper of this music. <laughs> Something like that, yeah. I mean, they're, they're, if there's a psychedelic diaspora, and I believe there is, then they are, they've been uh, the, the leading proponents. So if people want to, to read your book, can they find it in most places online? Yeah, uh, I guess. Well, I've been telling people that maybe the best, best, best way is to go to my website, which is www.edgecentral.edgecentral.net, edgecentral.net, and then from that, uh, from the front page, you can click on Mystery School in Hyperspace, and there you get all the options. So it's available as an ebook and as a paperback, and there are various options there. And most people have told me that uh, the uh, the price for the book is uh, pretty reasonable because the, the paperback is only twenty U.S. dollars, and probably less actually in many many places. But from North Atlantic Books, uh, it's twenty dollars, and uh, for five for five hundred page book, that's that's pretty good with uh, three hundred. Color, oh, sorry, uh, 30 color illustrations, including uh, Alex Gray and uh, Angela Jones, Luke Brown, Martina Hoffman, and so on and so forth. Do you have any other uh, websites or, or social accounts you, you want to plug, or, or is uh, your main website the only thing people need, really? Well, it, everything about me can be... Uh, can be accessed through that that one portal. So if you know if that's you know I, I have a lot of publications that many of which you know articles and chapters and so on people are interested in they can download. There's links through from that website. I'm a traditionalist, so I, I prefer the the hard copy, especially also with the images looks better. And and also if a book is very long, I think it's easier to read it when you hold it in your hand than than digi- digitally. But that's just me. <laughs> yeah, well, what I mean there by the the downloads is that uh, uh, there are many academic articles and, and chapters that. Um, that are available, but the books themselves, yes, sure, uh, hard copies are, are the way to go. Cool. 
Well, uh, thank you a lot for taking the time to talk to me. It was very interesting, and I recommend people to to get this book. Well, uh, thanks very much, Alex, for uh, having me on the show. Go to www.edgecentral.net to check out Graham's site and to get his book. Now, to conclude this episode, I want to play a song by Eric Fullerton called Minecraft Universe from the album Art of Dreaming. And you can find more of Eric's music at ericfullerton.bandcamp.com. And I'll post more links to his music in the program notes on naturalbornalchemist.com as well. And uh, don't forget to like uh, the Natural Born Alchemist Facebook page and uh, follow us on Twitter. Just uh, look for Born Alchemist, which is the name of the Twitter account. Freedom is in the mind. Minecraft.